Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Michelle Vosper, who was director of the Hong Kong Arts Programme at the Asian Cultural Council for 25 years, joins me this week to talk about her book, where she and other writers have interviewed 16 visionary women in the arts field, including four from Hong Kong. Michelle's book is called Creating Across Cultures, Women in the Arts from China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. Well, the book is a compilation of stories of 16 women from Hong Kong, China, China, Taiwan, and Macau, who have received fellowships from the Asian Cultural Council to go to the United States, often for the first time or their first trip abroad. And what is so interesting, when people go abroad for the first time, they start to think about issues of identity, um, mainly because they come across the other and they decide what their identity is not and what they are not. And because of that, they start to think about what they are and what their own cultural identity is. So the women had different experiences in the United States. It covers all the visual and performing arts and uh, three generations of history. The oldest is Nian Hua Ling, a novelist who was born in 1925. And then the youngest is a Guqin player who is 40 years old. So throughout the book, we also see history throughout that period through the window of the lives of these women. And you've got some Hong Kongers in there. Yes, of course. Hong Kong plays a very important role. There are four women, one uh, Mui Choi Yin, who is the leading choreographer in Hong Kong, and two visual artists, Choi Yin Chi, Jaffa Lam, and the playwright Zhong Wing Am, who is really the leading playwright in Hong Kong today. They're all women. Well, the whole book is about women. And the idea is to present women who I think are often not presented enough, although they are of a caliber, which is international level caliber. But I think they're not as well known abroad as perhaps their male counterparts are. Now, you lived in Hong Kong for 30 years. You have an arts background? I have a background in music, but I think my background it was really gained over the 30 years of living here and working in the arts. I, I worked in the Hong Kong Arts Festival for two years when I first arrived. And then while working for the Asian Cultural Council, I had a chance to meet so many artists in different areas. And as part of the selection process, we see all of their work. We go to their performances and see their exhibitions. So it's been a slow process of accumulating information about different art forms. So yes, you have a variety of women in the arts and from a variety of backgrounds in this story across the US. And it's a, a lovely plush book that, I mean, plenty of photos in there. But also what I love is the fact that you haven't just concentrated on the arts themselves. There's real human stories in there. Well, that was the purpose of the book. The, the readership, we mean to reach a general audience in the United States rather than scholars or people with backgrounds in Asia or even the arts, but people who might be interested in knowing more about people in China in Hong Kong, Taiwan, from a human point of view. And this is what we would like to present, is that these are people, uh, of course they are artists, which is a profession, but that they are people who can be understood and who have much in common with uh, women in the United States. I understand uh, from you that 90% of the uh, Chinese population in New York is from Fujian province. Well, actually 90% of the restaurants, the Chinese oh. restaurants in New York, are uh, run by people from Fujian. And so one of the women uh, in the book, Jaffa Lam, who is an installation and conceptual artist, uh, her family originally comes from Fujian. Uh, and she moved to Hong Kong from Fujian when she was about eight years old. She grew up in Hong Kong and has always considered herself to be uh, a Hong Kong girl. Uh, but in going to the United States, she, for the first time, 
started to think about her identity and in meeting up with like-minded people found herself of course going to eat Chinese food and here she found that the restaurants most of the people were from Fujian and she also spoke and speaks the dialect so she began to make friends and also to incorporate this into her artwork she actually did an installation in a restaurant in New York which one can see today I think it's on 34th Street a neon installation which says we cook art here <laughs> so it says we cook art here in English or in Chinese? In it's, a, it's a very modern neon sign with written in kind of script, we cook art here. And it's right in the front of the, um, the window of the restaurant, so one can see that when they go by. Oh, what fun. Now, in the middle of Chinatown in New York is a statue. Yes, Jaffa also, in, in making friends with the Fujian community in New York, she got to meet more and more people and learn from them, or they took her to visit a statue in Chatham Square in Chinatown of the Chinese hero Lin Zixu, who was the official who dumped all of the opium into the sea at the end of the Opium Wars. So this is uh, someone who is from Fujian, he's the hero of Fujian, but also of China as the person who really opposed the Western forces that were that were taking over China at the time. And uh, what did she do with his statue? Well, she discovered from her Fujian friends that it had been erected in 1997 as kind of a statement. Originally, it had a placard which explained the history of the Opium Wars and also explaining America's involvement with the British at the time. But apparently, uh, people found this in New York, found this offensive to point out this involvement. And so the placard was removed. What, rewriting history? So, yes, and she was very upset about this. And so what she did is, is to work with a group of, of people to create an installation, or you could say an intervention, with that statue. And uh, she made a, again, neon. She was working in neon at the time. She created a halo so that she could canonize her hero. And with a group of people and a ladder and lots of help from local restaurants who provided power, uh, she was able to install a halo over the head of Lin Zixu, which was only for about an hour because the police would have stopped this. But she does have a documentation of that. That's great. So in your experience for your book, did you find that a lot of the art that's going on in America by Chinese or by Hong Kongers, is it about their identity back in their home countries and bringing that to America? Uh, actually, I think that Jaffa's work was unusual in that she was able to actually do work in the United States. Not all of them have time to do that, and the purpose of the trip is also to observe and to meet people and to have that kind of exposure. So um, they're all different kinds of work, but I think mainly what they do, the idea is to just get new ideas and to think and then to go back home and create work when you get home. I'm talking to Michelle Vosper about her book, Creating Across Cultures, Women in the Arts from China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. Now, among the Hong Kong women, you, you've got Hong Kong's preeminent choreographer. Yes. Mui Chui Yin is also featured in the book. Uh, she's a wonderful choreographer who has her own story, of course. She comes from Guangzhou and her mother was Indonesian Chinese. And another example of how very diverse the backgrounds are of, of people in Hong Kong who really come from all over, not only from, from China. Mui Chui Yin, her story is interesting too because it kind of traces along the development of culture in Hong Kong. I, I think... Uh, when I came to Hong Kong in 1982, people were always talking about 
a cultural desert, but actually there was quite a lot going on all the time. But I think from the point of view of of expats and, and Western people who lived here, they really weren't aware of that. And it is true that there was not much public support for the arts at that time, so there weren't institutions. But during her lifetime, this is where we saw this explosion of the arts beginning in the 1970s. So she was quite lucky in timing because she was able to join the newly established Hong Kong Dance Company, which was one of many new institutions that were created beginning in the 1960s. It's quite an interesting story that culture, or at least official culture in Hong Kong, was somewhat induced for political reasons. And after the riots of 1967, I think the, the British government became quite nervous as to the loyalties of Hong Kong people because some were attracted to the very nationalist uh, rhetoric in the mainland. And so the British government realized it's time to have a, a Hong Kong identity, to have people really feel that they belong here and to have a more cohesive population. And so they began a very large movement of cultural development, seeing culture as a very important part of identity. Do you know, this is fascinating for me because I heard about, you know, education, ensuring that, you know, children could move on to secondary. At the start of the 1970s, you also have a move to create more and better public housing uh, for people here. So these fundamentals of daily living, but the cultural aspect, you're saying that they also concentrated on that, the government? Yes, of course, they were doing everything at once. And the first things were to make people for their livelihood to feel so that they had places to live. And of course, that would be the first priority. But culture, I think this is Governor Macleod, who really had the vision to understand how important the arts and culture are to identity. So beginning in, uh, well, at first it began with the Hong Kong Arts Festival. And then from there, there were performing venues set up in town halls in different parts of the new territories. And then it was time to put some, some programs in there. So they started companies. And the Hong Kong Dance Company was one of these, uh, the Hong Kong Repertory Theater, uh, the Hong Kong Chinese Orchestra. And so Moi Chu Yin was one of the first to join the Hong Kong Dance Company. And she had the background of Chinese dance because she had studied that in China and actually continued. There was a lot of Chinese dance among the Indonesian community here. That's another story of the Indonesians, Chinese, who went to China and then came to Hong Kong when they were persecuted in China. But many of them are dancers, and so she was able to uh, study that in Hong Kong and then join the Hong Kong Dance Company and then go on to become a choreographer and of, of her own style. And she worked with Pina Bausch and was commissioned by Pina Bausch to do a work for the company in Wuppertal. And uh, since she has choreographed all for companies all around the world. So Pina Bausch, very modern dance uh, there in Wuppertal, Germany. So would you say that the style of Moi Chuk Yin is very modern? Well, she began as a Chinese dancer. The Hong Kong Dance Company was um, a Chinese dance company. But then over time, she began to be exposed to new things. And this was actually part of the generation of uh, Chinese who studied abroad in the 1970s and came back. And during the early 80s, there were people like Choi and Chi and Danny Yong who were bringing back ideas that they had learned in universities in the States and in cities. And uh, so Danny Young, who had who later established Zuni. Zuni? Zuni Ikosa Hadrian, the theater company. Danny has done a great deal of educational work to bring new ideas into Hong Kong. And as Mui uh, explained to me, he had video showings of different kinds of uh, art forms and choreographers. And it was there that she first saw Pina Bausch in a video the right of spring and so she became mesmerized with this and then slowly started to create her own 
modern dance form, which had, of course, influenced by Chinese dance. It was something very unique of her own. So then... Over time, she choreographed for, the, for also CCDC, City Contemporary Dance Company. And um, then when Pina Bausch was in Hong Kong, in 1997, uh, the Hong Kong Arts Festival commissioned Pina Bausch to do a piece about 1997. And so when she came to Hong Kong to start working on this, she saw a piece by Wei Chuk-yin, which was an umbrella piece. And she was very taken with the prop, actually, and of course the dancer as well, and then invited Wei Chuyin to, to perform in Wuppertal for, uh, for the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Pina Bausch's company. And so from there they began to work together. How fascinating. And, and it's interesting, though, with contemporary dance, you're saying, you know, I'm not saying that there wasn't exposure prior to that, but, but presumably, you know, beginning of the 1980s, people are getting more opportunities here to see more international culture and more influences then coming back as you say from the students who've been abroad but with, you know in these town halls in the new territories were people ready for modern dance uh, modern dance is a hard sell everywhere in the world and even in new york uh, it's not that easy to bring in your audience of course now the the situation is better in new york but um i don't i don't remember actually if they were performing out in these other venues but a, a lot of modern dance is also taking place in smaller venues and uh, I think it was really the most important was the, the establishment of City Contemporary Dance Company by uh, Willie Chow in Wang Dai Sin, where they had their own space. And that's where most of the performances were taking place. Uh, I think it took a while to bring in a big, uh, a really big crowd. But I think by bringing in the international companies also helped because in Hong Kong, people were not familiar with this, but they liked big names. And this kind of introduced them first, and then they would be more open to seeing Hong Kong modern dance as well and now it's very popular so you've got the choreographer there you've also um, I'm I'm moving away a bit from Hong Kong but you've also got a, a very prominent novelist in your book Yes, Nia Hua Ling, who is also popular here in literary circles. She is now 93 years old, living in Iowa City, where she and her husband, Paul Engel, established the International Writing Program in 1967, which is really the world's leading uh, residency for writers from all over the world. So that's now 50 years old. That's right. And she, she's lived in the United States longer than I have and uh, has become as much of a part of American history as she is uh, of Chinese history. But she does write in China. Chinese. So unfortunately, her work is not that well known in the United States. Not much has been translated. I think for, for writers, translation is always a scary thing because you're, you don't really know if it's going to be the representation of your work that you want because it's very difficult, the nuance to translate that. So therefore, although she's a member of the Iowa Women's Hall of Fame, uh, her work is better known in Chinese communities. So she's very well known in China and in Hong Kong and, and Taiwan. Her story is a very interesting one. She was born in China in 1925 and then in 1949 she moved to Taiwan her, her father had been killed by the communists and so in 1949 the family decided that it was time to, to go to Taiwan but she ran into political difficulties there because at that time this is the era known as the white terror in Taiwan when there was a great deal of fear of communists and repression of intellectuals who would have say anything against the government so she'd been working for a journal that was called Free China, and uh, she did. She was a literary editor, but the editor was arrested and put in jail for ten years, and she was blacklisted. 
So uh, in 1964, she received a fellowship from the Asian Cultural Council, and she was ready to get out of there and to bring her daughters to the States because she was afraid. And uh, so she was able to um, get funding to go to the University of Iowa, which then had a program called the Writers Program. She had established later for international writers. So then she went to the States and, and, and stayed there for the rest of her life. She's still there now, of course, and came back to, to Taiwan. It took a while to reconcile her history there, but now she has been taken off the blacklist and she's a heroine in Taiwan in the literary fields. What you see with your book is also the people who've established themselves in what is their home city or their home territory, but many others who've taken their their culture and their identity to other parts of the world. And in fact, those other parts of the world, as you're just describing, are the ones that have taken over the majority of their lives. In her case, when you were interviewing her, I mean, where would you have said is her sense of belonging? As she says herself, that she belongs to all of these places, and the most important identity is of herself. Yes. But it's, a, it's an interesting case where everyone wants to claim her. So the writers in, in, in China want to say that she's a Chinese writer, and in Taiwan they want to say that she is theirs, but she's as much part of the United States as, as any of those places. And she's very diplomatic about not choosing a place, but uh, that is what her work is about. And, and having been to the United States, that it also changed her work, that exposure and what she wrote about. She doesn't really belong to any place, but she belongs to all of them. I'm talking with Michelle Vosper, the author and editor of Creating Across Cultures, Women in the Arts from China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. Let's talk about another Hong Kong lady. Shall we say Choi Yen Chi is, is a, a very important visual artist in Hong Kong, not only from her own work, but in terms of education and in terms of developing the arts themselves. But she was one of the first women to go abroad to study and she went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago at a time when Judy Chicago and Marcia Tucker and Chris Burden were then the, uh, the really hot artists at the time. And having studied art from traditional masters in Hong Kong, this was a very a real eye-opening experience for her. And so she was the first to bring installation art back to Hong Kong. And it was such a new idea that when she had her first exhibition at Hong Kong Art Center... Which would have been about when? That would have been about 1984. They had to find a translation for the word installation because it didn't exist in Chinese. So that is a part of her very large legacy is to have created that word, which in, in Mandarin is strong I'm not sure how you say that in Cantonese, but she's known as a pioneer who brought many ideas back. Uh, at the time she introduced these things, they were so new that uh, I'm not sure that the reception was completely positive because it was very difficult for people to accept these new ideas. And so in retrospect now, uh, it's, it's easier to see the enormous contribution that she made. And in going on to be a teacher, she has nurtured two generations of students and, and until today. Can you describe to me some of that early installation art? Artists are always inspired by events that are taking place and by their environment. And very often they want to expose the part that is not said, that is not part of the official discourse, but which is an important part of the story as well. And so in later times, she was also affected by political events in China and was concerned about oppression of the arts and so one of the things that she did was to take books and to submerge them in uh, fish tanks in water 
where they would sort of dissolve. And this was to express her fear about the suppression of intellectuals and, and the arts and culture. She did another piece which was about education, and this was called Journey to the East 97, in which she has a classroom of desks and tables lined up, and then there's nothing on the blackboard. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and great lighting for this as well. Yes, it's a beautiful piece, but very simple and stark and uh, very disciplined, and, but somehow uh, it doesn't look like very much is being learned. Choi and Chi, in 2015, she was invited to take part in Yoko Ono's global event, Morning Peace. Uh, and and uh, this was taking place all over the world over a 24-hour period of the summer solstice. And so she created a piece which took place on the rooftop of the M Plus Museum. And it's a very simple and gentle piece in which she brought together a group of people for three hours during the time of the sunrise just to be present and just to watch the sunrise, which is something people rarely do in Hong Kong. And she filmed the beauty of this, which most of us miss. <laughs> and the artists were given pads of paper, and she points out good cups of coffee. And it, silence was required, but they made notes of, of their reflection at the time. And it was also a piece that was following up on demonstrations of the year before and meant to show a sense of light and hope for the future and waiting for the first beam of light was the name of the work. So this is a conceptual work which uh, involves a group of people but then the documentation of it is the artwork that remains that can be shown again and again. Yeah, some great ideas. I think that's very good. I think um, it should be sort of perhaps mandatory that we watch it once a month you know, <laughs> for our own well-being. Well, I think, yes. It, I think we often think of artists as sort of telling about all the doom and gloom, but it's not always the case. I mean, many of them are also trying to point out an optimistic way. And, and as Choi and she said to me one time, there's always uncertainty means that things may turn out well. So there are different ways of looking at that. So you want to always hold on to the uncertainty if this can give you hope. I like that idea. I like that sunrise idea. It's also very interesting. I mean, Hong Kong, I think, I wonder if New York shares this, actually, in terms of Hong Kong here, you know, installation art particularly, but it, it's a matter of having the space, it's a matter of having the materials, and um, you'll have known from your 30 years here that, that sometimes artists here get a bit pinched in terms of they've tried to establish themselves in the old factory buildings in Kuantong, for example, and they're gradually being moved out of that. We have the cattle depot, we have a few other artists, areas but studio space can also be very small I mean in your experience of here in Hong Kong uh, and New York do you find that artists adapt <laughs> you know, they've got less space they make smaller installations well, first of all I would like to say though that Hong Kong artists of all artists from all the regions that I have known I admire them more than artists from any place because I feel they have the most difficult situation and space is one practical problem, of course, which they have to adapt to, and so you're not going to see these gigantic pieces of work like you will see in China, and I saw work once which was a whole airplane, I mean an actual airplane, <laughs> because they're able to have access to this space. So of course they have to work, the Hong Kong artist has to work with restrictions in space, which is another restrictions are not always bad they can be a kind of inspiration but I think more so what I admire about the Hong Kong artist is what they the society 
itself is does not provide uh, very much support. And um, it's not just about finance. It's also about uh, just the, the status of the artist. And in while working for the Asian Cultural Council, I, I interviewed just hundreds and hundreds of artists in Hong Kong and China. And it's very interesting to me to see the difference of their background. Because in China, many artists come from uh, a background of artists. A, a musician would have become from a family of musicians or artists or, or the theater. There are not that many who are just the mavericks who just decide they're going to do this and, and the family has no background. In Hong Kong, on the other hand, the, most artists come from working class families, which often do not have much appreciation for certainly modern art. And in Hong Kong, which in some ways is still is very traditional Chinese society, the family is very important. And the child is expected to take care of their parents. And actually, to even before leaving home or, or being married, they are giving the parents money to as the mayesik it's just to they you know to to buy some something to eat but it's it's a kind of support so there's an obligation and, and an artist is not going to make a lot of money in hong kong and they know that and in, in a sense they have to deal with the the guilt of not playing that role and so in the family there may not be the support and then in the society you're not going to get a lot of applause because it, you don't have this the kind of romantic image of an artist in New York, except in the very small community. So to be able to fight through that lack of practical resources, then lack of moral support requires a very strong and determined person who it's really against all odds. And so the ones that are able to survive are very special, unique people who are very tough. And uh, so I have enormous admiration for them. Tell me about Candice Chong. Candice Chong is a wonderful playwright whose work is all about Hong Kong and different periods in Hong Kong history. One thing that interests me so much about it is that she's a woman playwright who in Hong Kong is never called a woman playwright, just a playwright. And this is something that is very special about Hong Kong too, where in women have quite a high status in Hong Kong society. And uh, this is in contrast to in the United States. Uh, women playwrights and directors are always up in arms because their work is not appearing on stage enough. It's not appearing in film. And so certainly not getting awards because it's not even out there. But this is a situation for which Hong Kong is quite unique. So Candice is the leading playwright and her work has always been about things that are happening in society. It's interesting, she first studied psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. So she has this ability to analyze her characters at great depth. <laughs> That's very interesting. So she has a take on things which I think is, is quite unique and, and psychological. Her first work that became famous was called French Kiss, which was based on a real case wherein a Christian pastor was sued by uh, one of the people in his office for sexual harassment. And then she uh, examines the complications of that relationship, how it's very difficult to see what really happened and, and the different perspective of the two people. And this time it was quite a taboo topic in Hong Kong to even discuss this and so to put it on the stage was very courageous of her and there was actually a lot of opposition because people didn't want this to be discussed for different reasons so she immediately distinguished herself as someone who was going to deal with topics that uh, were important but that were not being covered so in recent times she has been 
writing a lot about the political situation in Hong Kong and bringing out the views of people from different sectors of the society. And she's been she, she's very prescient in terms of knowing what's going to happen next, which is, I think, the special characteristic of artists. They're always ahead of everybody. And so they're not aware even that they are foretelling the future. They just do it. And so her work has been, again, showing the human side of uh, political situation and, and never in a didactic way, but in always showing the complexity that is the reality. You have authors, playwrights, uh, choreographers. Were they all happy to talk about themselves? They were extremely happy to talk about themselves. And this is one of the reasons I decided to focus on women, because I started the book covering both men and women who had received support from the Asian Cultural Council. And first of all, I discovered that the men were already quite well documented. And so, as, as, as you know, as a journalist, you're not interested in doing things that have already been done. Uh, so the women were not well documented, but even more so, when I began to speak to them, it was such a wonderful experience because... I, I think we can say that women do like to talk to one another and uh, there was so much information that they wanted to share and there was such a sense of solidarity and and they felt it was very important and I, I was I was uh, hesitant to, to change the book to women only because I thought they would say well we're not just women artists, we're artists and, and that this would be a kind of smaller category but they didn't at all they thought it was even more interesting that there would be this focus My thanks to Michelle Vosper author and editor of Creating Across Cultures, Women in the Arts from China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.